0: Welcome back to digital to the Digital Guardian podcast. This is episode number ten, and with us today is Dr. Jess Barker, award-winning sociologist and a cyber psychologist based out of the UK. Joining me today are Thomas Fisher and Tim Bandos, and my name is Will Gradito, and I'll be one of your hosts. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Will.
1: Hi. Thanks.
0: So. Dr. Barker, I know you prefer Jess, and that's fine by me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jess, why don't you tell us a little bit about the work you do? I, I, I read up on your bio. We've never met in person. Thomas knows you, though, instead uh, of so some of the other folks. And you do some work with this little guardian with respect to social media and blogging and things of this nature. But why don't you tell us uh, what you've been working on for the last the last few years?
1: Sure. So my background is in sociology and town planning but I started working in cybersecurity about eight years ago. When I was finishing my PhD, I was headhunted for a cybersecurity consultancy. So I started out doing consultancy work in the defense space, mainly doing information security assessments of really large organizations, and then also doing some awareness raising training. And then about four and a half years ago, I set up my own business. And During that time, I've been working with a real variety of organizations on what is kind of generally called awareness raising training, but I like to think of it more as behavioral and cultural change training. So talking to people about cybersecurity, what it means, what it means to them, and really focusing on how we can kind of get the message through to people for whom security is not their day job. So really try and change some behaviors in organizations And I do work around communications, around policy, around understanding where the vulnerabilities lie in the human sense. And then about six months ago, I co-founded a new company called Redacted Firm, where we're really looking at how we can bring the human and the technical and the physical sides of cybersecurity together in a more meaningful way.
0: Excellent. Excellent. That sounds like really interesting work. So you've spent a lot of time, obviously, then studying and collecting data with respect to the behavior of authorized users and insiders. Uh, is that correct?
1: Yep, that's right. Okay, excellent. And uh, what, do you,
0: what, what can you tell us about uh, what you've seen over the years when, when you're collecting that information related to insiders uh, that leads to either potentially negligent behavior or uh, accidental, uh, accidental s- uh, situations that, that allow or, or encourage compromise or those, those behaviors that lead to intentional compromise and exfiltration of, of data, for example?
1: Sure. So, I mean, in terms of the accidental insider, the, the non malicious insider, I think it's well known that that is far more prevalent than a malicious insider, than someone who intends to cause harm and intentionally, for example, steals information. But of course, when you have a malicious insider, they are much more costly, much more damaging problem. In terms of the sort of accidental non malicious insider, the, I think the most interesting thing, the most important thing to understand is is how big the gap is between what we in the industry get and talk about and the language we speak in, how big that gap is between what we do and what we say and the average user, so-called. So for most people for whom security isn't their day job, we talk in this language that they don't get. We we kind of work in a technological way that is more advanced than they might be and so we have this kind of big gap where we'll be telling them things like oh you need to use a password manager you need to use two-factor authentication stuff like that and and they don't even really know what those terms are so we'll think we're giving advice that is just like common sense and straightforward and we're wondering why people don't do it when in fact they don't even really know what we're talking about and that's one of the biggest findings that I always get when I do pieces of research so for example surveyed the UK public a couple of years ago, a thousand people in the general public about two-factor authentication, basically just asking if they, if they understand it, if they use it. And I found that 70% of people said they didn't know what it was at all and 80% of people weren't using it. And so I think that's an example of something where we think it's, there's this simple thing that is quite effective and people aren't doing it um, and people in the industry will get really frustrated. But in fact, we're using terms that they don't even relate to, that don't make sense to them. So when you're thinking about trying to change behaviors in an organization, it's really important to think, am I speaking in a language that people get? Am I speaking in a language that people understand? Are they going to hear what I'm saying? Or am I kind of just talking to my peers? And if you want to change behaviors, if you want to change culture, you really need to shape your messages so that they're at the right level and that they are appropriate and interesting and translatable for people who don't work in security.
2: So would you say that we as an industry or the professionals in our industry have a problem talking to people in up and down, so to speak, or across?
1: It's something I hear a lot. People people come to me with that as an issue a lot. Certainly, you know, how can I speak to the board? How can I influence at a senior level? How can I get them to understand the problem? And and then also people will be trying to change behaviors, change culture. Maybe doing some awareness raising training, and they'll be saying, Why isn't this getting through? Why isn't anybody listening to it? Why are people finding this boring? Why are they not engaging with it? And usually it does come down to the same issue, which is the communications haven't been shaped for that audience. So when you're speaking to the board, it's all about speaking at that business level and how you can translate cybersecurity issues and risks into business risks that they understand conference recently somebody described their senior executives as stupid and you kind of think how how can you how can you think that these people are stupid like they're running a huge business a lot of money and they are obviously you know pretty successful at that and have been pretty successful in their career just because they don't get what you're saying about security doesn't mean they're stupid it just means you haven't found the right way to translate it for them And I think we haven't focused on that as an industry. We've focused so much more on technology and we've kind of banged our heads against the wall when it comes to people who aren't in security thinking, you know, why don't they get it without actually looking at why they don't get it and and realizing that actually the problem isn't them. Really, it's, it's us. It's an issue we have in the industry where we need to think about the human factors in a much more broader sense.
2: So, I mean, if we go down that if we think about um, leaving out the aspects of the board, but if we go back down to 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 the end user or even to the general public right because it affects the general public when we 're talking to them, how do you think what what would be the best way to address this or how can we i'm not i want to use I want to use a different term, but i can 't think of it right now, but you know we we talk about dumbing down the message right or making it simpler or making it more relevant to people you know I usually use the 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 example of terrorism where, you know, in in the French metro and in the London tube, they're, they're continuously making an announcement. If you see a suspicious package, report it, et etc. et cetera. I mean, you're training people to do kind of like a physical security awareness aspect. Do I mean, I, I don't think we need to go to that extreme. But what do you think we need to do to get a better message across? You know, in UK, we did that cyber, um, what was it, the, the, the home office program where they were doing those commercials trying to teach people what cyber security was? Do you think that's, the, oh, that's yeah. the solution or do you think we need something else?
1: So I think you, the, the campaign you're talking about is maybe the Cyber Aware, I think it was called.
2: Yeah, that um, was the one, yeah, I think.
1: Yeah, where they spent a lot of money on that. But from my point of view, I mean, I don't think it, it made much of an impact in a good sense. And I, I didn't personally think it was that effective. So I think one thing, a lot of organizations will come to me and they'll kind of say, we know we've got an issue around... The human side, you know, we want people in our organization to take security more seriously, we want a better culture, we don't know what to do. And so I will work with them to look at what they've been doing already and the problems that they have. And the issues I generally find are people look at awareness raising training as being the answer. And they kind of think, okay, we've got this problem, so we'll do some awareness raising training. And so they might do like a half a day training program once a year, or even worse, they'll do like the online training programs that people click through. And they know it's not going to change behavior, but then they're frustrated when it doesn't. So I think we need to look at the communications that we're giving to people, and we need to think about whether they're actually going to be effective. I have an issue, and I I said at the start, I don't really like to call it awareness-raising training, because awareness is actually quite raised. And that's one thing I've found when I've done research, both in organizations and in the general public. People are really quite aware of cybersecurity. And with some of the big attacks we've seen, like with WannaCry, you know, it is all over the news. It is the top stories, for example, on the BBC website. It's the headlines on all of the mainstream news TV programs. People are talking about cybersecurity like never before. But what we don't generally succeed in is actually getting to that next stage where we change behaviors. So I think for me, where I see success is, is kind of breaking down the problem. So I will do, like I say, what I call behavioral change, cultural change training. And for that, it's all about explaining the how and the why. So why cybersecurity matters. And that has to be really relevant for the people in the room. So it's relevant to the organization, you know, not just the threat in general, It's not about scaring people with APT when that isn't relevant to them. It's about looking at what is actually relevant for the organization and even deeper than that, the actual people in the room. So talking to them about personal security as well. And then also kind of demonstrating the how. So I think cybersecurity can feel like a very sort of intangible thing and people can click on a link in a phishing email and they don't see anything happen, you know, unless it's ransomware. So for them, they won't put together the actual kind of threat vectors and the attacks with with what happens. So I like to do lots of demos, for example, spear phishing demos, of showing people this is what an attacker can do. This is how it actually works. So taking it from being very theoretical to much more practical learning. And I think in that regard as well, it's about looking at the different ways we communicate with people. So not just kind of throwing information at them, in like a classroom setting where some person talks and everybody listens but how can you be engaging how can you get them to learn visually and learn by problem solving and you know learn by talking and and taking um, initiative for their own learning as well because all these different kinds of methods are ways of actually embedding information with people so not just talking at them but using different parts of their brain and getting them actually engaged and being interactive has a much bigger effect.
2: In that interactive kind of session, what do you find is most effective?
1: So partly it depends on the people in the room, but I think demos are really effective. That's where we have found we've had the biggest impact in organizations. So we worked with a bank not long ago, and we did some like social engineering awareness raising stuff. They were really worried—a very big bank—and they were worried about everybody's use of social media, how much information they were sharing, and then getting a lot of spear phishing emails. So we did some some OSINT on the people who were coming in the room for the training. Spent just a few days, you know, doing some research into them, and then presented that all back at the people in the room, you know, this is the information we found out about you. We found out a lot of stuff. We even got to the point of finding blueprints for somebody's house, things that people would not have expected to be publicly available. And then we showed, okay, so this is what we found out about you. And this is how an attacker could use it. So an example of a spear phishing email using the information we gathered. And then if you click the link on that email, this is what then happens. And showing them both the attacker and the victim side, Obviously, nothing changes on the victim side, as far as they can see, but from the attacker side, everything that can be achieved. And that seemed to really change perceptions. We also did a like a password cracking demo. And again, people hear all the time, you know, they should have unique passwords, complicated passwords, but... That just seems like an annoyance to them. They don't understand why, because they've never had that experience. When you see password cracking and you see, okay, this is actually like real, and this it's very, very easy to break a simple password. For example, in, in that training session, people went out and um, 60% of the group requested information on the internal password manager. The bank had been trying to push that password manager for months beforehand and hadn't had much uptake. But suddenly when people get why they need it, there was much more drive to have it. Yeah, that makes sense. Jess, let me
0: ask you, after you've gone through your program with an enterprise, what is the best method then to to measure the success of that? I mean, how do you go about, you know, kind of after the fact uh, with a company?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Like metrics, I think, are a big issue for everybody. And sometimes the human side of cybersecurity is dismissed because people say oh it's hard to measure which of course isn't isn't true at all what i do is i work with the organisation before we do the training so what are the changes that you want to see in place for example is it around uptake of the password manager is it around using two factor authentication is it around inquiries going into the infosec team so what what are the kind of things that you want want to see change and then how are we going to measure those so I think it's really important when an organization is doing training is to think about why are they doing it. This can't just be about, you know, ticking a box. If you want to change behaviors, what are the behaviors that you want to change? And okay, let's work out how we're going to measure them. So it's very particular for each organization. For some, they do like to do kind of phishing exercises. So they will like to do that thing of sending out the fake phishing emails, seeing who clicks on them or how many people click on them. And that's really popular, I think, in a lot of organizations. If I'm working with an organization that really wants to do that, then I think the key thing to understand is that that should be part of a wider culture. I think you can't just test people. There has to be a reason for testing them, and it has to be part of quite a positive culture, because people don't really like being tested. But a lot of organizations like to do those, those kind of fishing exercises because they provide them with a metric. And it can be nice to wrap those around training. So to do a fishing exercise before, do a training awareness raising behavioral change campaign and then do an exercise afterwards and see, okay, how has that changed? And then you may want to keep those kind of exercises going. And when you start to get a spike in numbers, think about more training. I think the key thing if you're doing any of that kind of testing of people is not to punish them if they click on the link or whatever it might be. It shouldn't really be about punishing people, it should be about kind of understanding where you need more training and more support for them.
0: Yeah. I think that makes sense. And then just I another question for you. So when you go into these organizations, do you find that people know what they need changed? Or do you have to go in and really educate them on what you believe, you know, needs to be changed, I guess, as a base? I mean, how often do you have those conversations in the beginning?
1: Yeah, it's more of the latter, to be honest, yeah. I generally find that people come to me and they know they want something done around the human side. And sometimes that will be as much as they know, they will just say, you seem to have the skills we need, we want to do something, with our user base, can you help us? And that's a really brilliant position to be in, to be honest, because then I can go in and get to understand the organisation a bit, and get to understand where the issues are, and then look at okay, how we, how we're going to address those. Other places, they they have been more refined in what they want. They've had more understanding of where their issues are. They may be, you know, particularly concerned about, for example, spear phishing emails. But usually people feel like we need a bit of a cultural shift, but we don't quite know what we want or how to do it. So then that's always a really interesting exercise to help the InfoSec team or the IT team really think about what it is they are looking for.
0: So just can you talk for a moment about what you see with respect to post-testing exercises? So in my experience, uh, security awareness programs and education programs have been, have at least in the, in the world that I came from, very limited uh, success. So, what what do you attribute that, that those limitations to over time? And uh, you know, especially in an age where uh, we're we're discussing and promoting breaches and the consequences of breaches on a global scale quite often. I mean, last year the numbers from the Verizon DBIR came in in mass with respect to the number of breaches reported, slightly lower, but the percentage of breaches attributed to insider activity and they don't qualify that insider activity necessarily as in a, in, a, in, in the granular terminology that we're talking about today necessarily was about 25%. So what do you account, what, what's your perspective on why these programs fail or what needs to occur to um, mediate the risk associated with failure in pre-existing education and awareness programs?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. People complain a lot. Organizations have issues a lot where their um, training programs or education programs won't have succeeded. I think one issue is if you see your awareness program as just like a one-off activity. So if you think it's just a once a year, you know, half a day classroom session, or it's just a rollout of online training, just doing that isn't going to change behaviors or change culture. If an organization does that, it's normally because they just want to tick a box and say, yep, we've done our annual training which is fine if you just want to tick a box, but if you want to actually have an impact, then it's about being much more inventive with your training. And it's also about seeing it as a process that is ongoing. It's not just a one-off thing that you can do once a year. It's something you need to constantly think about because you can raise awareness and start to change behaviors, but people will kind of slip back into their old patterns unless you keep that activity up. So it's about thinking about how you can keep getting your message out and how you can kind of keep having a conversation with people. So this might be, for example, having like cybersecurity ambassadors or champions in your organization, having a network of people who are out there spreading messages about cybersecurity at their team meetings, you know, raising the latest kind of news and attacks and stuff for conversation with their colleagues and also feeding back questions that colleagues might have, feeding back issues that people might have. So thinking about it in that way of how can I keep a dialogue open with the, the, the people in the organization who don't have security as their day job, how can we hear what their issues are, and how can we help them constantly remain aware of cybersecurity? I think on the other hand, sometimes some of the issues are because the policy is wrong. So too often organizations will write you know what they want in an ideal sense in a cybersecurity policy, and then they'll push it out and people won't read it, or they'll read it, and there will be things in there that aren't realistic for them to get their day job done, and so they will find workarounds. And this obviously is very frustrating for the people, for example, in the InfoSec team, but it's an example of where you haven't had that two-way dialogue. So I would always encourage organizations and work with organizations to look at their policy with the people who are actually going to be using it. So talk to people in the organization, find out what is working for them, what isn't. When they aren't following policy, then why are they not following it? And can you find a way forward that works for them, but that also puts the organization at less risk? Because if you just try and force rules onto people, and if those rules get in the way of the day job, then they're always going to break them because security is not going to be their number one priority. So it's about having that two-way conversation and it's about trying to have a policy and approach that takes into account how people work and tries to support and enable that. And it's also about making sure that awareness is raised in a way that is sort of interesting and that people can actually get. So you're not just telling people what not to do, which is often an issue with cybersecurity, um, but you're explaining to them why there are certain things that are going to be bad for security and why they cause damage and how they can still work but put the organization and themselves at less risk.
2: Uh, Jess, earlier you mentioned um, one example where the password story that you mentioned earlier and in the end people were asking for a password manager to get access to that password manager inside the organization. To follow through on that, do you think that if if an organization provides tools that users can also use at home, that helps the situation or just just doesn't add any additional value.
1: Yeah, I think it's actually a key thing is helping people, either giving them tools that they can use at home, um, so they can have better personal security, but also kind of giving them the knowledge and the information they need to stay safer in a personal sense and to keep their family safer. So another bank I worked with recently, we actually ran cybersecurity for parents sessions So this was kind of evening sessions where parents, guardians, you know, people that that cared for family members were invited along. And um, there was a small panel of us talking about cybersecurity from our perspective. And then it was kind of an open floor where people could ask questions about their individual circumstances. They could ask questions about keeping their kids safe or about problems that they or their family members have had in terms of security online. And when you do things like that you become really aware that a lot of people don't have anywhere to turn you know if someone is worried about their teenager and what they're what they're doing online and you know whether they've had a problem with with someone behaving or contacting them inappropriately or if someone is worried that their gmail account has been compromised People really don't know where to go. They they don't generally, unless you happen to have someone working in cybersecurity in your family, a lot of people don't know where to turn to for advice. They have questions and they can't get answers to them. And they, so they'll be quite worried about them. So I think for an employer to have those kind of conversations or to facilitate those conversations with people... Who are working for them? Then it, it it works in lots of different ways. I mean, it's a good thing to do in terms of corporate social responsibility. So it's a very nice thing to do in terms of having a positive culture, and in terms of making your staff feel supported and understand that you care about them. It's a great way of spreading cybersecurity messages out to the general public. You know, because they can go home and talk to their family about them. But it also will keep the organization more secure as well, because when people get into that mindset of cybersecurity in their personal life or when they're given tools that they can use at home, then they kind of start to get into those behaviors at work as well. And they will start to understand security in that workplace setting as well as in the home setting. Is I think a lot of what we're trying to do when we're doing awareness, behavioral change training is we're trying to influence their mindset. We're trying to get them to think about security. Um, so if you can get them to think about it at home, then they'll think about it at work as well.
2: Yeah, um, that, that, that makes me think of, uh, you know, the IC squared, they do uh, tr- um, cyber well, cybersecurity training for, for for children or for kids. They go to you know there's a group that goes to schools and does a, these afternoon sessions or the evening sessions where they try to tell explain to kids the risks that they're taking on you know using things like facebook and and other social media networks uh, do you think what we I mean t- it's happening now right We need to train people uh, whether it's training uh, the new generation of, of, of information security professionals or whether it's just training people to use systems properly ic squared is doing it. Do you think it's something that needs to be embedded completely in our in our school curriculum? I know I know you know the IC Squared is doing it in the UK because we both know the, one of the people that's that's actively doing it. Um, what, I mean, what's your position on that? Do you think we need to go that far down, or or should it be should we stay at uh, this level? But when we when we're professionals and when we enter the workforce,
1: no, I completely agree that that doing that kind of educational piece at schools is really important. I love the ISC Squared approach. They use Garfield in a lot of their resources for kind of for younger kids, um, which I think is really nice way to do it. Make it nice and accessible and more interesting for younger children. So I, I definitely think providing cybersecurity education at schools is a completely vital thing to do because young people are, you know, we all know that kids are using the Internet from a really young age and they will go on to you know use it more and more use it when they're at university and then getting into the workplace so it has that kind of twofold benefit where obviously we want to keep people safe especially young people so it works for that and then also when they go on into the workplace then hopefully they will have a level of awareness and understanding that's been built in from them being in school so i think that's a, a really important thing to do but a couple of issues i found with that one thing Recently, I did a session with some young teenagers, some young teenage girls, talking to them about cybersecurity in a school. And the girls knew most of what I was talking about. They um, had a lot of their own stories to tell. And there were stories that hadn't really been shared with anyone else. But because I went in there talking about cybersecurity, they felt like they could open up to me, I guess. And they felt like this was a conversation where they could talk about some issues that they'd had. So these issues then really surprised the teacher who knew nothing about them. And I think for the girls, it would have been like, well, why would we talk to you about this? Because we've never had these kind of conversations. And as part of that, actually, it was there was a few teachers in the session and they were the ones that were kind of wide-eyed at what I was saying. And they were the ones writing down questions and coming up to me at the end of the session. So the girls definitely found it interesting, and they like to have the opportunity to talk about some of this stuff. But it was the teachers, I think, that benefited from it the most. So there is talk and plans of kind of rolling out cybersecurity into the, further into the curriculum, certainly in the UK, which I would support. But teachers need a lot of support in that as well, because they aren't cybersecurity experts. They have a lot of questions themselves. And kids have kind of grown up with this stuff, but the teachers haven't you know a lot of them are of a generation um, where they won't have grown up with it at all so we need to make sure that the people delivering the education are supported so so yeah I think there's, there's some other another issue I have I think it's really important to focus on schools and to look at this kind of next generation of people coming into the workplace and also filling the so-called cyber security skills gap but at the same time we need to not forget about the people who are out of school you know we can't just focus on 10 15 years time we need to think about the people you know who are adults now
2: there's definitely a generation gap right i mean if we pick, mm-hmm. if we pick back up from where we left off kind of there's just, there's definitely a generation gap between the young kids that are coming along uh, and like the generation that's teaching those kids who have absolutely no idea about security who have minimal competencies i'd say in in just technology as, you know, computer, using computers and things like that. Um, and we have the professionals that come into play. So um, if we, you know, th- there's, there's the aspect of who trains the trainer, right? How do we get proper training for the, for, for the teachers to be able to, to get those kids in the, into the right mindset and to, to help them get to that level? And then on the opposite side is like, what's going to be the impact as these kids come through, uh, you know, to the workforce? On, the actual, on, on information security as we know it today, right? Because it's going to be a completely different ball game. We saw it a couple of years ago when, you know, the millennials started to come into the workforce and they all expect complete internet access. They all expect to have mobile devices. You know, it was a complete impact on, on IT teams as, as, you know, as those millennials came into power, or well, not power, but came into the workforce. Do you, do you see, do you think something like that's going to happen to information security as people that come into the workforce are more aware and more likely to have the foundations. Will that impact our jobs? Will that impact what you were talking about? You know, building that user, uh, that cultural change, and that, that cultural, build, you know, building that that the, those uh, correct practices into into the workforce.
1: Yeah, I think so. I I certainly hope so. I think you're right, and you've raised a couple of really interesting issues. One thing, as you said, like who trains the trainer. And we really need to address that when we're trying to roll out more cybersecurity training and more cybersecurity teaching in schools. At the minute, I think most cybersecurity teaching in schools comes down to kind of private companies going in, people going in and giving kind of ad hoc support and lessons and that kind of thing to kids, whereas what we need is to get teachers together and to get them trained and supported and also to put in place a support network for them so that... You know, I kind of see their role as being a bit like the um, ambassadors I spoke about in organizations. So if we're expecting them to go into schools and teach about cybersecurity and kind of be ambassadors about it, they need the support of who do they go to if they have a question, who do they go to when kids raise something that they don't know about or, you know, when there's an attack that they don't understand, like how can they get information that they can pass on in a meaningful sense and make sure that what they are passing on is accurate and of enough detail to be meaningful for the kids. And then on the Mm -hmm. other hand, you asked about um, what happens when the kids that are growing up now with a bit more awareness when they get into the workplace. And I certainly, I see this from young people. I see that they have more awareness of cybersecurity. There seems to be this kind of myth out there that young people are less security savvy, that they're less interested in security and privacy, but that's not what I have seen or what I've found at all. So for example... I did a bit of research a year or so ago, I think, on um, biometrics and on what people think about biometrics replacing passwords. And I found that the most resistant group was young people. It was people like 18 to 24, I think. And I thought that was really interesting. And um, one thing I didn't that didn't occur to me at the time, but someone suggested afterwards, was that a lot of people of that age have lived through having biometric systems in their schools. And so they've had to, you know, provide their thumbprint to get their um, school dinners and stuff like that and have probably felt like they don't really want the school to have that information. And they've started to think about these things of what happens if that gets lost or someone accesses it and they see attacks in the news and they think, well, that could happen to my school and I'm not really comfortable with that. And also probably don't like the authority of a school kind of demanding that of them. So I think we will get people who have more of a mindset um, coming into industry. And that's going to, I think, help with the culture of a lot of organizations. But there also will be a bit of an interesting tension between people, much like we saw with your example, with kind of so-called millennials and uptake of tech. I think we'll see younger people coming in who have more awareness of security. And then there's going to be a bit of tension between them and the older generations in the workplace who have their existing practices which aren't as secure. So organizations will probably have to manage that, where you have very different groups of users. And so you need to communicate the messages in a different way to try to get everybody up to the same baseline.
2: Right. If we go back to the 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 train-the-trainer aspect, I think everywhere in the world nowadays, um, maybe apart from France, because Michael announced that he's going to Fund a lot of training, a lot of enhancement in the education program. But uh, you know, most governments are cutting back fees on education, and they're cutting back—not uh, well, fees, but you know, funding of education. There's there's a lot of pushback on you know uh, on what money education has to actually spend on things like that. Should we, as an infam- as as an industry, be funding or financing uh, train the trainer programs for teachers, so we actually get that message out and get proper behavior in? to the young generation. Uh, would that do you think that would help or do you should we should we look at it mm. should we try to carry on with these kind of ISC squared programs where you know groups go and, and do sessions on a regular basis?
1: I think that for me probably sits more comfortably than than it just being down to private organizations. I mean I think there's a few issues and you know it, it could the discussion could get very political because it, who is responsible? Is a very big question in cybersecurity, but especially when it comes to kind of the general public, whatever age they are. So it's one thing when we're thinking about security in an organization, but when we're thinking about getting these messages out to people in the general public or to educational institutes, then then who is it that should be responsible for that? And, you know, maybe it should be the state, but as you say, that's not really realistic considering there's already a lot of issues around resource and funding. So then should it be private companies? On one sense, I think that would be fantastic. On the other sense, you can see how there could be issues with that. You know, that if a private company is sponsoring education in a school, then is that going to be very vendor heavy <laughs> we've all sat through kind of conference vendor presentations <laughs> where people are pitching their products and I wouldn't wish that to happen in schools <laughs> so that you know there may be I'm kind of exaggerating but there may be some conflict issues there but also you may just have the point where that private company is no longer able or willing to provide that support and so it leave a gap so I think it, it's probably preferable that it is those kind of professional bodies we have if they have the, the you know, the facility and the resource to provide that support, then it's fantastic. But realistically, I think the position we're in is that anybody who can provide that support is going to be helping. And whether it should be our role or not is one question. But if you can provide that support, if you have a bit of time, a bit of resource, then that's going to be helping society in general and also a lot of individuals. So that's why I engage with some of the school stuff that I do because I just think I have the information and I, I I, can provide some of this support, so I try to do it where I can. And if everyone can do that, then it would, I'm sure, help a lot of schools and a lot of people.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I think a consortium or, or, or professional groups probably are the better, because you get a di- more diverse aspect of the training, a more diverse view of security rather than one individual yeah that's uh, company or vendors, I mean, that's, it's, you're always better you're right. diversity.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, as you say, you have more diversity and probably also more continuity.
2: Oh, that's great. Do you have any closing thoughts or before we, we sign off?
1: Um, I guess one thing that I'm thinking a lot about lately and that we're talking a lot about in the industry is kind of the rise of the human side of cybersecurity. Because for a long time we have been more technically focused and I think in the last year or so there has been more more said about the human side, more emphasis on the human side, which is really good to see. From my point of view, this industry kind of prioritizes technology so much more, whereas I think we've still got quite a long way to go on the human side. So one thing that I think is really important is thinking about how we support IT workers, how we support people working in InfoSec to develop more of the human-based skills. So we talked about awareness-raising training earlier, and the research suggests, for example, if you look at SANS securing the human stuff, their research finds that most people in roles delivering those kind of education programs have a technical background. So I think it's really important for us as an industry and for organizations to think about how are we supporting those people in better understanding the human factors so that the awareness raising, behavioral change training can be more successful. So how are we helping them to understand issues around psychology and sociology and communications so that they can have more of an impact, whether they're talking to the average person in their organization or whether they're talking to the board to try and get more resource or whatever it might be for the infosec team.
2: Thanks Jess. Tim, any last thoughts or words?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, it's really important, right? And uh, just touched on a lot of really important ideas that, and I agree, that the, the success of these types of programs, awareness and education type type programs in cyber, really depends on consistency and time and, and, and ingraining that within a culture, right? And I think that that's where I've noticed most of these things fail. And I would agree that it, the effort needs to be much more global. And, and you, you made an excellent point earlier as well, Thomas, about... Beginning that type of training, seeding that type of training in, within the educational system, right? Because the world is quite different than it was when most of us started out in this space. <laughs> when you have an entire generation who've up, That's an with, understatement. With, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you have entire genera- you know, an entire generation that's grown up with unfettered access to the internet, right, and all the accoutrements that is, that are associated with that, it behooves us to take to take the time to think about these things from an elementary perspective. So I would agree, absolutely. This is a really excellent podcast. I think it's going to do well, do well for
2: everyone. Thank you so much again, Jess.
1: Yeah. Pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you all.
2: For my last thoughts, closing thoughts. Yeah, I, it, it's the same, really. I mean, the human aspect was grossly overlooked over the past few, you know, past decade or so when we started this, this journey into into cybersecurity, and the, the fact that it's coming back and the fact that we're focusing on it so so hard, really, I think we will make a difference i mean people starting to be much more aware and uh, even when you look at commercials on on tv i'm thinking um, and Jess will probably laugh at this but the latest hsbc commercial for two factor authentication in the uk is based on voice recognition and it's i mean it's it's corny to a certain extent but it is int- it's it, it's subtly introducing the aspect of we need to be more careful about what we're doing with with our with our Daily access and our daily accounts and things like that. Um, so yeah, the human aspect is really is really important. I think today. Yeah. So thank you again, Jess. It was it was good to hear you. Probably see you um, September forty four on time frame.
1: Sure.
2: So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, that was that was very that, that, that didn't sound too. <laughs>
1: too the
2: enthusiasm was
0: unbridled.
1: I'm sorry. I'm like at the end of conference season. You know what it's like. So oh, I'm so excited about. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah you see for me it's ended now and I've now got like a month where I'm not getting on a plane or I was going to say not on a train but that's not actually true but no I know that by the time September comes around I will be fully excited for conference season again but <laughs> I'm so exhausted right now
2: I, I understand that so again <laughs> thank you again Jess for for being on the podcast so my name's is it's Thomas thank you all for listening And we will announce uh, episode 11 later through our Twitter feeds and usual outlets. Expect to see this podcast very soon online. Thanks.